0: This is your trigger warning, listener discretion advised. Before we proceed with this episode, we want to provide a trigger warning. This episode contains adult content and sensitive discussions about topics such as murder, sexual abuse, and other heinous acts. We understand that these subjects may be distressing or triggering to some individuals. If you feel uncomfortable or emotionally impacted by such content, we urge you to prioritize your well-being. It's okay to take a break from this episode or skip it altogether. Your mental and emotional health are important to us. If you decide to continue listening, please be aware that the discussions may evoke strong emotions. The Ripper Crew, also known as the Chicago Rippers, represents a chilling chapter in criminal history. Often forgotten, they were an organized group comprised of serial killers, cannibals, rapists, and necrophiles. Operating in Illinois during 1981 and 1982, they were implicated in the gruesome murders of at least 17 women and one man. There may have been more. Not all of these crimes were associated at first. Additionally, not all of the crimes have been officially solved yet, and thus, convictions have only been obtained in a few cases we will focus on those cases. And although we know more about the tragic circumstances surrounding many of these victims' deaths, we will start with the information that would have been available to the police during the initial investigation.
1: The, uh, the common thread that seems to be going through the, uh, all the homicides that we're investigating is that the victims were uh, lone females at night and just uh, either abducted or brought into their car or banned whatever vehicle they were using and uh, they were attacked and mutilated and the bodies were dumped.
0: From the perspective of the police, the investigation begins in late spring of 1981 when the first victim, Linda Sutton, was abducted on May 23rd, 1981. Her mutilated body was discovered June 1st in a field near Villa Park, close to the Brer Rabbit Motel. Her hands were cuffed and her clothes were partially removed. There was blunt force trauma to her face, and her body, including both breasts, had been mutilated. Her left breast was almost entirely amputated. Seemingly the work of a sexual sadist, the police had very little in the way of evidence or suspects. Nearly a year later, on May 15th, 1982, Lorraine Borowski was kidnapped while opening up the RE-MAX Realtors office where she was employed.
1: Her keys, some cosmetics, and a pair of her shoes were found strewn in front of the firm.
0: Additionally, some coins and a nut driver hand tool were found. Later that morning, her boss reported Lori's disappearance to the Elmhurst police, and the shoes and keys that were found in front of the office were subsequently identified as Lori's. A witness reported a reddish orange van parked in an area of the parking lot that normally was empty, but little else was known.
1: At this point, we're going on the assumption that she was abducted. There's uh, no indication in our investigation for any reason for her to be missing at this point.
0: Lori's body was found five months later on October 10th of 1982. She had been left in an unused portion of a nearby graveyard. That graveyard was near Villa Park. Her left breast was partially amputated and the post-mortem determined that she had been stabbed multiple times likely with an ice pick. On May 29, 1982, 30-year-old Shuey Mack and her brother were arguing during a car ride home. Her brother stopped the car and Shuey angrily exited the vehicle. Her family never saw her again. Her remains were found on September 30th in a wooded area near a new housing development. She was clothed, but her sweater and her slacks zipper were both torn. She had multiple fractures, some attributed to blunt force trauma, and others from unknown causes. Stabbing was a possible cause of some of her injuries, and her breast had been removed. Two weeks later, on June 13th, Angel York was attacked. Fortunately, she survived her attack. She reported that a red van was cruising the street she was walking on and stopped next to her. She was quickly taken captive by two men who jumped out suddenly.
1: A woman claimed that she had been picked up by a man in the vehicle who raped and mutilated her.
0: Once in the van, she was handcuffed and repeatedly raped. She was told to cut her own breast in exchange for mercy. She testified that when her trembling hand slashed her own breast, one of the men went into a frenzy. He grabbed her hand and plunged the knife into her chest. He then mutilated her breast and masturbated into the wound. She was then duct taped and pushed out of the car into the gutter. Angel had suffered a nightmarish attack, but she was still alive and able to remember a few details about the van. First, the aforementioned red color, and second, a roach clip adorned with feathers hanging from the rearview mirror. Three children walking down by the riverside, and they found the body. The body of an 18-year-old prostitute named Sandra Delaware was found on August 27, 1982, under the Fullerton Avenue Bridge on the north branch of the Chicago River. She had been raped, stabbed, and strangled. Her wrists and ankles were bound with shoelaces, and a ligature was around her neck. An autopsy revealed that the cause of her death was strangulation and a stab wound which had penetrated her liver. Details about specific mutilation are unclear in this case. However, it is around this time that police began to assume that at least some of these cases are related.
1: Police are also investigating possible links between unsolved murders in their jurisdiction.
0: On September 8, 1982, the body of Rose Beck Davis was found between two buildings on Lakeshore Drive in Chicago. A stocking was tied around her neck and her breasts were slashed. She had multiple skull fractures, and a four-inch piece of wood was removed from her lacerated vagina. The cause of death was strangulation. The sixth and seventh victims were Rafael Torado and Alberto Rosario. The two, believed to be drug dealers, were both shot on October 6, 1982, while standing in a phone booth on a street corner in Chicago. Rosario was taken to the hospital and survived. Torado, shot once in the head and once in the neck, died from his wounds. This would prove to be the only male murdered in the spree. On the exact same day as the shooting of Torado and Rosario, Beverly Washington accepted a ride from two strangers in a van. At some point, she was sexually assaulted, attacked, and left for dead. Like many other victims, her breast was removed. She was found under a bridge near some railroad tracks, and she is considered the last victim in the heinous crime spree. But she didn't die. Instead, she was able to describe her attackers and their vehicle a reddish-orange Dodge van similar to the one described so many times before. But this time, the police found the van.
1: This red van played a key role in launching the current investigation. Gecht's name surfaced after police stopped the 1975 Dodge van with Spreitzer at the wheel. Spreitzer denied any wrongdoing, but pointed out that the
0: van belonged to Gecht. On October 20th, 1982, Chicago police officers stopped a reddish orange van that matched the descriptions given by multiple victims. The van was being driven by Edward Spreitzer and belonged to Robin Gecht. In a subsequent search, three knives were found in the back of the van. The inside handle on the back door was missing, and according to trial testimony, the door could only be opened by inserting a tool where the lock should have been. The nut driver found with Lori Borowski's keys and other items in front of her office likely was used for that purpose. Edward Spreitzer and Robin Geck were arrested, and on the evening of November 7, 1982, Spreitzer led police officers to the home of one Andrew Kokorales in Villa Park. Now a suspect, Kokorales was arrested and brought to Area 5 headquarters in Chicago where he was questioned that evening and for the following two days. During that period, he confessed to the murder of Lori Borowski and to the murders of several other women.
1: They have been cooperating to a degree and uh, at least one of them has made a written statement. One of the men that has been charged. That's correct. Are you liberty to identify who that is? I won't do that at, now mm-hmm. at stage of the game. The arrest of the three men is touched off inquiries by area lawmen.
0: The details that follow come from legal descriptions, admissions, and court reports. In some paperwork, it is unclear who the person listed as the defendant actually is, but in every report mentioned here, the defendant is either one of the Cocorales brothers or Edward Spreitzer. Gecht did not speak to the police, so there are no confessions from him. Later, this will matter, but for now, Brace yourself, what actually happened to these women is difficult to stomach. The first murder mentioned by CoCorales was that of Linda Sutton whom the defendant said he and Gecht had picked up in Geck's van in Chicago. They took the victim to a lot behind the Br'er Rabbit Motel in Villa Park where they had sexual intercourse with her and stabbed her several times. The defendant also said that Geck took a piece of piano wire and used it to sever the victim's left breast. According to Kokorales, Spritzer was also present at the time. Kokorales went on to say that one morning during the spring of 1982, he and Spritzer were driving in Geck's van on Route 83 in Elmhurst. They entered a parking lot where they saw Lori Borowski and they forced her into the van. Cocorales said that they then drove to a cemetery where both he and Spritzer beat and stabbed the victim repeatedly. When Lori was dead, they dragged her body into some weeds. During Edward Spritzer's interview, it was revealed to detectives that in late May or early June 1982, he and Gecht were driving in Geck's van somewhere in the western suburbs when they saw a woman walking alone. Spritzer stopped the van and asked the woman if she needed a ride. That woman, whom the defendant described as oriental, accepted the offer. After driving for about 10 or 15 minutes, they stopped in a field in an area where new houses were under construction. Spritzer got out of the van and told the woman to get out, but she refused. Gek and Spritzer then pulled the woman from the van. Spritzer hit the woman several times and she fell against the side of the van. Spritzer then held a wire around her neck while Gecht cut her breasts. Then another jagged-edged knife was retrieved from the van. When Spritzer returned with that knife, Gecht had his penis in the woman's chest wounds. The woman they were describing was Shuey Mac. Another of their murders took place in August of 81. Gecht gave Spritzer a ride to Winchell's Donuts to pick up Spritzer's paycheck. They saw a black female hitchhiker, and Gecht told Spritzer to get into the rear of the van. Gecht then picked the hitchhiker up and drove to a forest preserve. He stopped the car and then tapped twice on the floor of the van. Spritzer then left the van through the rear door, taking a knife and a pair of handcuffs with him. Meeting Gecht at the front passenger door, he gave the knife and handcuffs to Gek, who put the handcuffs on the woman. Gek told Spreitzer to stay near the van while he took the woman into a wooded area. As Spreitzer sat in the van, he saw Gek knock the woman down. Five minutes later, Gecht returned to the van with one of the woman's breasts. The identity of this woman is still unknown. Finally, according to Spritzer, he and Gecht were driving in the van on August 27, 1982, looking for a prostitute when at some point, a black woman entered the van and spoke with Gecht about sex. The van stopped and Spritzer, who was in the back, heard two taps. He left the van holding a knife and met Gecht at the front passenger door. Gecht pulled the woman out of the van, removed her clothes and handcuffed her while the defendant held her arms. Gekt then had intercourse with the woman while she performed an oral sex act on the defendant, Spritzer in this case. Gekt then asked Spritzer if he was having fun to which Spritzer replied, no. Gekt then asked Spritzer what he was going to do about it. Spritzer then stabbed the woman twice in the chest with his pocket knife. Feeling nauseated, he returned to the van. Gekt returned to the van a few minutes later with the handcuffs and the knife. This victim was Sandra Delaware. Now there are plenty more stories, all quite similar, but I'm pretty sure you get the point. Obviously, are Gecht and Andrew Kokoralis were all arrested. But Thomas Kokoralis, which was Andrew's younger brother, well, he was also arrested. And to this day, Thomas's involvement is actually unclear. We will get to that shortly. When Gek was first arrested, he had to be released due to insufficient evidence connecting him to the crimes. After further investigation, the police discovered that in 1981, he had rented a room in a motel with three different friends, each with adjoining rooms. The hotel manager said that they held loud parties and appeared to be involved in some kind of cult. When interrogated, Thomas Kokorales confessed that he and the others had taken women back to Gecht's place, which Gecht called a satanic chapel. There they had raped and tortured multiple women and amputated their breasts with a wire garrote. Kokorales went on to say that they would eat parts of the severed breast as a kind of satanic sacrament and that Gecht would masturbate into the breast before putting them back in a box. Thomas Kokoralis even claimed that at one time he actually saw 15 breaths in the box. It is important to note that both of the Kokoralis brothers were low IQ individuals, particularly Thomas, who was said to have an IQ of 75. The same could be said about Spritzer. Nonetheless, the convictions are as follows. In 1984, Spritzer, in a bid for leniency, pleaded guilty to murder in the deaths of Shuey Mack, Rose Davis, Sandra Delaware, and Rafael Tirado. As well, he pleaded guilty to attempted murder, aggravated kidnapping, deviant sexual assault, and rape. He was sentenced to life in prison without parole. Two years later, Spreitzer was convicted of murder and aggravated kidnapping in the death of Linda Sutton, and the prosecution was seeking a death sentence. During the sentencing phase, Spreitzer's attorney argued that he was immature, impulsive, and simplistic and was following the orders of the gang's leader, Robin Gecht. She described Spreitzer as a lonely person who would do almost anything to please his friend. The prosecution, however, described Spreitzer as every woman's nightmare, calling the gang cowardly weasels who roamed in packs to prey on women. Spreitzer was ultimately sentenced to death. the only member of the gang to maintain his innocence and never speak to police was never tried for any of the murders due to a lack of evidence. However, in 1983, he was convicted of attempted murder, aggravated kidnapping, sexual assaults, and rape for the non-fatal rape and assault of Beverly, Washington. For this, Gecht was sentenced to 120 years in prison. During sentencing, the judge told him only a devil would do these things. An animal would not do these things, but a monster would. Gecht is currently serving his sentence at Danville Correctional Center, and his projected parole date is October 10th of 2042. If he makes it, he will be 88 years old. In 1985, the older brother, Andrew Kokorales, was convicted of murder, aggravated kidnapping and rape in the death of Rose Davis. The prosecution sought a death sentence. During the sentencing phase, Andrew's attorney said his client had been a follower, not an organizer and not the prime mover in Davis' murder. The jury spared Andrew's life and he was sentenced to life in prison without parole. But two years later, Andrew was again convicted of murder and aggravated kidnapping in the death of Lorraine Borowski. In this case, he was sentenced to death and he was executed by lethal injection on March 17, 1999. Remember that date. Andrew declined a last meal and his last words were to the Borowski family, I am truly sorry for your loss. I mean this sincerely. He then cited verses from Exodus and Proverbs and added, "'Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand.'" His brother, Thomas Kokorellis, was convicted of murder and rape in the death of Lorraine Borowski as well. However, as a reward for his detailed confession, he was sentenced to life in prison without parole. In a controversial and almost ironic series of twists, Edward Spreitzer's sentence was commuted to life in prison without parole after Governor Ryan commuted the sentences of everyone on death row in Illinois. But before that happened, Andrew Kokorales became Governor Ryan's only execution. This was just over two months into the governor's administration and before he had decided to commute death row sentences. As such, Andrew also became the very last inmate to ever be executed in Illinois. And finally, on appeal, 75IQ Thomas Kokorales' rape conviction was reversed and he won a new trial on his murder conviction. Now, rather than face a retrial, Thomas pleaded guilty to Borowski's murder in exchange for a 70-year sentence. The charges in the murder of Linda Sutton were also dismissed as part of his plea agreement. Thomas was scheduled to be paroled on September 30th of 2017, but was denied release after he failed to find an approved place to live. He was eventually released from prison on March 29th, 2019 and is still alive today. And we have sound from him. They
1: don't wanna see me out there on the streets, period. Everybody thinks I'm I'm a monster.
0: Rape and torture. You have any involvement in that?
1: No, ma'am. I looked in your eyes, and I'm telling you, tell this guy the truth. No, I had no participation, no knowledge. I had no participation in none of these crimes, none.
0: Prosecutors said that you knew details that only someone would know if they had been there.
1: No, what they told me. Like, a dumb fool, I repeat right back to him. There's
0: ma'am. nothing that you want to say to that family?
1: No, I just, I just want to say that I'm, I, feel, I feel for him. I feel sorry for him. They want to see me back behind the bars, permanently. But they got to deal with it, I'm out.
0: Believe what you will about Thomas Cocorales, according to the state, he is a convicted killer. And now for the notes. First, on a personal note, I chose this story because I remember the news reports about this from my childhood. I was in elementary school and I was living outside of the Chicago area when this was happening and the fear that I felt as a child turned into a a morbid curiosity for this sort of thing. Perhaps that's why I'm doing this podcast right now. As for the Ripper Crew, a few things stand out. Obviously, the MO is pretty consistent across these victims. They're young women, they're transient, sometimes prostitutes, some with addictions. The most vulnerable people in society were chosen to be their victims. Stabbing, mutilation, and sometimes strangulation were their calling card. During many of the crimes, only a few of the four total rippers were actually present. It seems there was only a few occasions, mostly while at this satanic temple, that they were all actually together. Also, the way the crew developed a process for doing this, which including the back door of the van being effectively locked, and the tapping on the side of the van that was used as a signal to go into action, Uh, They had their tools and their processes down, and they were efficient, and that's quite scary. It makes you wonder how many they actually killed. Then there's Robin Gecht. Everything about him just seems diabolical, and I say this because by keeping quiet, Gecht avoided nearly every charge. He was only caught through the testimony of Beverly Washington. And at the time, the judge told Gecht that He was lucky that she hadn't died or he would be facing murder charges. And although I get the judge's point, the truth is that had he killed her, and there been no witness to his crimes other than the other Rippers, he may have gotten away with everything. By maintaining his innocence, he had allowed others to admit their guilt in the other crimes, thus avoiding conviction for himself it stands to reason that he could have done the same thing in response to the Beverly Washington attack had she died. Fortunately, the court threw the book at him for what he did do to Beverly, and he will likely die in prison. It is also important to note that Gekt was accused of being the ringleader by every other suspect, and it certainly appears that the other three were more henchmen than anything. We will never know, but the detective overseeing the case remarked that Gecht made Manson look like a Boy Scout. Also, the satanic aspect of this was quite real. It is highly likely that most of this was ritualistic, at least for Gecht. It also seems likely that Gecht was doing this long before he bumped into the Cocorales brothers or Spritzer. He was older than the other three by at least seven years and had been placed in the areas of some earlier murders from the late 70s. And one more tidbit of information that seems too weird to be, but is in fact true. Robin Gecht once worked for John Wayne Gacy. Yeah, that John Wayne Gacy. And one more crazy odd thing. On March 7th, 1999, just 10 days before Andrew Kokorales was going to become the last person to ever be executed in Chicago, will David Gecht, that would be Robin Gecht's son, was charged in the gang-related killing of a man. So like father, like son, just the weirdest shit ever. In the end, Edward Spritzer is in jail for the rest of his life. Andrew Kokorales was executed. Robin Gecht is 70 years old and in prison until at least 2042. And Thomas Kokorales, well, he's a free man. And all I can say to that is stay safe, stay curious, and stay tuned for the next episode.